Hello, coffees, me listeners. Welcome to Coffee Is Dot Me podcast. This time also with video. And on the other side, the more handsome person here is Sebastian Ramirez. Hey, Sebastian, welcome to the Coffee Podcast. Hey, Valerian, how's it going? It's excellent to see you again because uh, you are a former student and also a buddy of mine. So it's kind of cool to connect and talk about your coffee today. Yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, yeah, learn a lot from you, so I'm super excited for all the learnings. Oh, thank you. But I learned from you too. Uh, and I hopefully mm -hmm. today we learn from you too even more. Uh, but, you know, I usually have this warm-up question for my guests. It's about your first coffee. Do you remember your first sip of coffee? I do. It's actually interesting. I grew up in a coffee farm, and I've never had coffee until I was like, I want to say, 18 years old. I mean, I had when I was little, and I hated it, to be honest. I was like, yeah, don't like it. First time I was forced to drink coffee was because I was studying for a calculus test in high school. And our professor, like, failed everybody. Uh, we were taking, like, it was like either you pass the test or you fail high school. So I was studying late at night. And I'm not going to lie, I had a horrible, a horrible like, uh, instant coffee. But it kept me up all night. And that was my first experience. Not the best experience. But like after that, I was like, oh, there's some caffeine effect. And I started getting used to the taste of coffee. And then I tasted like better coffees. And But that was the experience was black coffee first. Uh, we like probably was Nescafe or something like that. So into drugs. Yes, it was the caffeine addiction after that moment. <laughs> Awesome. Well, whatever, whatever works, you know, your path is now uh, clear towards coffee uh, and used with uh, caffeine. That's cool. Well, you know, I know that you are an IT guy and a nerd like me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I just wonder uh, why, why did you decide to go with coffee and uh, what are you doing with coffee right now? Yeah, so it's actually an interesting path. So like I said, my first experience was not great with coffee. So I always felt like, oh, yeah, it's just caffeine and whatever. And then I moved to the States. Uh, I mean, I kept drinking the bad coffees, to be honest. And I moved to the States. Uh, and I started, like, working in tech. Um, growing up, I started, I mean, I miss the farm, um, all with the whole farming level, seeing the people in the community running the farm. And I was, like, working in tech. And I was, how can I connect myself back to, like, my roots? That was about like 2012. Um, and somehow I ended up working with my dad and figured out a way to get a scholarship to take a tree grading class, which is a funny way to start in specialty coffee world. I still haven't tasted any coffees and I didn't know what I signed up for. So I took this tree grading class um, with Marty Curtis, who honestly, he's been awesome. He was my first introduction to specialty coffee. He opened my eyes. I gotta say, I failed the test. Uh, not all of them. I actually did quite well, uh, but... Yes, I tasted coffee and I realized how amazing it could be. And I was like, oh, it's not this bitter, bad thing. And there's actually a lot of flavors and different experiences. Uh, so funny experience was that I got there and people were like, did you read the book? How many times have you, for how many years have you been cupping? And I was like, what are you guys talking about? Uh, and I wanted to run, but I still went through the class. And it was the best thing in the world when I realized that I was missing a whole world of coffee and that's when I realized I really wanted to do it. But then I went like, okay, I need to do a coffee shop. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I went to the whole business planning and I realized, oh crap, I don't have money. <laughs> uh, you think it's like super easy. And then I realized I didn't have the money. So I'm like back to the drawing table, kept working and I kept it in the back of my head. 
uh, and eventually I saved enough that I was like, okay. Uh, and I moved to Phoenix and an opportunity came up and I was like, okay, let's do this and let's learn how to do this. And how that's how I jumped in coffee. But the whole goal was to connect with the family, uh, honestly, and help the farmers. I've seen, I've seen my dad and my grandparents and my great-grandparents struggle uh, through the uh, fluctuations of coffee prices with the seed market. And I'm like, there has to be a better way to support the farmers than just buying from like, and I'm not saying importers are bad, but like just buying outside without thinking about the farmer. It's very easy to buy the best lots. But I see farmers saying they have good lots and people are like, I don't want that. I just want the 86 plus and the rest just sell it at market price. So that's why I'm like, I need to jump into doing business with coffee shop or something and try to change the mindset of people or just buying the 86 plus. Okay, so you mentioned a few things, uh, and uh, let's return to them. First of all, you said you came to from United States uh, to United States. So, where are you originally from? Who is your dad? Because you mentioned him a few times. Yeah. Uh, and what do you mean by your roots? Yeah, that's actually a great question. I should have started there. So uh, I am a, I would say I'm a fourth generation coffee farmer. So my my great grandparents started a farm in 1960s uh, in Antioquia, close to Medellin, um, a region called Santa Barbara. Um, and the farm is Colombia. passing over. Colombia, yes. And it's been passing over multiple generations down. So one of the farms is owned by my great-grand-uncle, and the other one is also great-grand-uncle and my cousin. And the other one is by my dad, uh, who is a third-generation farmer, and I grew up with him. So I will consider myself a fourth-generation farmer. I still get to go every year for crop season. And it's super fun. I'm not going to lie. I get to enjoy the best part of the season or the coffee farming uh, because people think about crop season as the fun. And yes, the rest of the year you're working towards how do you make those beautiful fruits to be grown. And people forget sometimes about all that effort year long, like making sure that you don't have insects or pests uh, or like any crop diseases or anything. So it's a lot of work and cleaning up everything and picking up the beans that are hanging in the food. So there's a lot of work during the whole year, but I get to enjoy the best part. Right now, I do eventually want to help my dad more with uh, the farm uh, as he's getting older. Um, but that's my long-term vision. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. So Colombian, I've been here for 12, I forgot time, moved here 2009. Been all over the States, started in Florida, New York, then Denver for like eight years, Seattle for a couple of years. And now I've been in Phoenix for like almost five. Oh, wow. Cool. Um... I came in 2010, so we are almost like uh, like country buddies. <laughs> so, yeah. It's awesome to refreshing to have uh, different accent, like two different accents and non-American. But that's all United States all about, right? So people forget that this is a nation of immigrants, that melting pot. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. All right, Sebastian. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about your. So you decided to start a cafe. Uh, it's interesting because most of the people start other way around. They, you know. You have a farm, so why not to start roasting or importing green coffee and sell it here? You went right away to the hardest part of the thing, to the cafe. So, first of all, why? And can you also describe us your cafe a little bit? Yeah. So, the reason why, so I started thinking about just doing the importing coffee and selling over here. And the reality is, it is hard to be a importer when you only have one source because most. I started doing some market research actually after I realized that I could not open the cafe. And these, most roasters are looking for like a complete solution. And I get it now that I actually am roasting as well. And I can go into more detail later. 
it is very hard when you have to order from multiple vendors, give me this coffee and oh, can you also give me this other coffee from Ethiopia? Like they want all full package and be in a single farm. It's very hard to become the solution for a roaster. So the other approach was to go to importers and try to get my coffee through them. I honestly didn't look into that approach. I should probably look into it uh, later on. I'm, I'm, I'm meeting more importers, so I might talk to them as well. Uh, but I decided the coffee shop path, probably like everybody, we all see coffee shop like, oh, this is very cool, very chill. We're going to have a great experience, make lots of money and have a great time. Uh, little did I know that it's not that easy. Not, I mean, it's still cool. Not going to be wrong. I love to go work the shop. But making money in the coffee shop is not that easy. It's a very volume-based business. Very hard to manage cost and make a profit. Um, still cool, I love it. I mean, I will not change my life. I work in tech and I all day long I say, I wish I could make enough money in a coffee shop to make my living. And I'm pretty sure people can make it and it depends on your lifestyle. Um, but it's a tough business to be in. Like I've seen people that have to own multiple coffee shops to actually make a, a good living. And it's just because there's a lot of costs, especially in the States. Most people from like me being from Colombia, minimum wages are, you pay a minimum wage and you have like, actually like 48 hours a week from that employee. And it's very little. And here you're paying by the hour. So like if you have an hour that the sales are low, every the cost starts eating you alive. And People do not, I didn't realize about that. I'm like, oh yeah, I see impact. You're making a lot of money and you realize it's not that easy. But yeah, it just seems sexy, fun, lots of dreams. Still have him, still trying to work to make it a lot better. But uh, yeah, that was the reason it just seems sexy and fun because everybody hangs out in coffee shop and it's like, everybody dreams about having a bar. I don't drink much. I drink coffee. So I was like, coffee shop sounds fun. And that was the reason I went with the coffee shop approach. Okay, uh, that's fair. Uh, it's... I love the naivete of the whole thing because I did the same, by the way. In 2002, I opened a cafe and I was like, oh no, I hate this. This is not for me. You actually like it, so that's better for you. And we're going to talk about economics in a sec. Uh, but I also want to know a little bit more about your cafe. So tell us where it is. Yeah. Uh, tell who are your customers and also what you guys offer. Yeah, so... It is in uh, Tempe, Arizona. So we are renting from the Arizona State University campus. We're considered being part of the campus, but we're actually out. I like we're in the outskirts of the campus. So people actually that are walking in Tempe can come to us, which is great. Uh, when I bought the business, I thought it was, it was actually an existing coffee shop. Uh, and we took it over from a different person. And we can talk about a little bit about that later. But like when I got the location, I was like, oh my God, we're in campus. Like I see thousands of people outside. This has to be a gold mine. Uh, of course, the back of my head, it was like, why is this guy selling? If it's a gold mine, why would you sell your gold mine to another person? Uh, and it's really, I mean, and that's really what you have to ask yourself when you're seeing another location. Like if they're selling something, it's like, why? Uh, so I started asking questions, but anyway, we can go into more detail that lots of traffic, but then you have seasonality of, of uh, students, school year packed, then you have to plan for like summer, which is pretty long right now. We're in summer, very hot in Arizona. So even worse because it's like, it's a ghost town around there. Uh, parking is an issue. So, uh, going to that, like if, when I say parking, like it's like students have to pay for parking and there's not public parking that is free. So that's one of the challenges. So. Saying that my customers are really like students, faculty, tons of faculty. Actually, I think the faculty is our biggest customers. Uh, very educated people that are coming in to do research in the university. Uh, students are a little bit tougher. We, we do have a few of them, uh, but students, a lot of times, I was a student. You're trying to be like 
stingy so you're trying to go for the cheapest stuff to get your like your money's worth so you go to starbucks and there's another ch chain here called uh, dutch bros and they're very dark roasted coffee very sweet drinks they're not about specialty coffee or anything like that but students are looking for the cheap stuff to make their money money's worth uh, but yeah so that's kind of my clientele i'm still trying to uh educate and get some of the students to come to us even though we're more expensive than a starbucks or a dutch post it's all about the whole experience um, and what makes a difference. And today, to be honest, I'm working on uh, revamping my menu. Um, it's taking me a lot of time, to be honest. Owning a business is very interesting because you go in with a head mindset. So we bought an existing business. That's great, but it's also terrifying because you're buying a business with customers. And my the previous guy had our drinks were cheaper than Starbucks. So just start with that. I was like, how in the world is this guy making money? We were selling drip coffee cheaper than Starbucks, uh, lattes cheaper than Starbucks. And you go in and you're like, well, if I change price, I didn't think I was this before about the business. And, I'm like, if I and then I bought the business, like, well, if I change prices, I might lose the customers that I bought for this business. And if I start making very drastic changes, I'm going to lose pretty much the customers that were pricing to the business value. So it's a good thing because you have the guarantee that you have a traffic. And you're like, okay, for me, it was great because to be honest, I have, I was not a barista. I didn't have any coffee shop experience. So I was like, I get a working business, gives me time to figure out how to operate a retail location, how to make money, how to get customers. While I can see other people or my friends that have gotten coffee shops and started from scratch, which has pros and cons. They don't have a guarantee of foot traffic. They don't have customers, so they have to build that up. So there's pros and cons. And in my side was like, once I learned coffee, I'm like, how in the heck do I change my business model, my pricing, my drinks, and not lose my customers? And it's been super challenging, scary. Um, and I definitely had lost customers because I'm taking stuff away. Like I was selling 24-ounce lattes and used to drive me bunkers because we're pretty much selling like a gallon of milk in a cup. Uh, and when we took that, we, we went to 20 ounces and people were like, what the heck are you doing? 20 ounces is not enough. I want a 24 ounces. If you could do 32, I would buy a 32. And I was like, well, at that point, you start making decisions. Like I want, I don't want to have my business just to make money because I mean, don't get me wrong. You want to make money in your business, but at the same time, you want the business to represent you. Uh, so it was that balance that I, or battle that I keep running. So I started changing the menu. And right now, to be honest, we are like, we're very, I would say 2.5 wave coffee, where still people come in. We have great drinks. Great, actually, we say our drip and our espresso is amazing. Uh, but we're still allowing people to like, oh, I want to add vanilla and I want to these uh, arroz con leche, which is like a rice pudding from Colombia or dulce de leche. So it's still like people making their own things. They're very yummy, but it's, my learning has been is all about marketing and how to differentiate yourself. So right now, if you think of that experience of people coming and building the drinks, that's very... Uh, I'm just going to call it very Starbucks oriented where you people pull the syrups and even Starbucks is getting out of that game where they're making pre-built drinks. Um, so now I'm actually thinking about in this summer, I'm actually working right now when it's slower. I get time to think about how to improve the business. So now I'm revamping the menu. Uh, we're going to be launching everything in August. Uh, right now we're doing some experimentation to having like pre-built drinks. That is not just about pre-built drinks. It's about how are we different from the stores around us because there's plenty in campus. Like I, I wanna say there's like four Starbucks around in like a three block radius. That's crazy. There's four of them. And they can, oh, take, wow. they can take my students' cards that are funded by the parents. I cannot take them. 
Uh, and I, I talked to ASU and they told me, oh, we'll charge you 30% per transaction. And I was like, well, that's my profit. It's gone. Like, uh, that's my like, I just can't. I'm gonna, that's my cost of goods. Like, I'm giving drinks for, for good pretty much for free. So, if- well, I think uh, you have a right approach when it comes to uh, price yourself what you are worth, mm-hmm. find your customers. You also have to emit that special promise. And it can be, you know, in your case, it can be something like uh, you are a farmer, which I th- still think you do a horrible job at. I'm sorry, man. Yeah. Uh, when you were here, we talked about it. I mean, I think that people feel very strongly about the social uh, message, you know, when they get their coffees. And I know Colombians and I, I have a lot of friends, a lot of former students. You guys are very humble. You are very polite. But this is United States when you have to kind of, you know, play it up a little bit and brag about it. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, I think you figured it out yourself because you already mentioned it a little bit. So in Green Plantation, that's how I do price changing is we bring another product and a new product can have a new price. You're not increasing prices per se. Mm -hmm. You are basically bringing a new product with a certain price. And, you know, I, I can't even imagine that people go and help themselves with the syrups. I mean, boy, if I would do that in Slovakia, I mean, people just, you know, just go free, you know, just go like crazy. So I think it's it sounds to me even more sophisticated when you curate that beverage. It seems that you it seems that you added some kind of like uh, salt to it. You added some know-how and you created a beverage. Sounds to me more sophisticated than just like, yo, what do you want to add to it, you know? I mean, there will still people who go to Starbucks. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But people are a little bit more sophisticated. They trust your uh, taste. They trust your uh, judgment. And they will come to you, I, th- I think, I hope. No, you're totally right. It's funny you mentioned that. That's exactly how I'm doing the change. The change is not going to take away everything. I'm actually just going to make an emphasis on the new drinks. Uh, so today, like the menu is very basic. You build your own. So now my head is menu is like push our custom-made drinks. Uh, because people, like, if you think about people, or even myself, when I go to a location, it's very easy. Like, if I know it, I'm going to go for the easy stuff. You go for the things that, you know, you like it, especially when you're in a rush. In a cafe, you have a line, peak hour. You're like, I don't want to hold the person behind me. Just give me the vanilla latte and get me out of here. You're not looking for anything new. Uh, so a couple of things that we're, we're going to be doing is, again, customizing those drinks, uh, pushing down the, like, build your own. And another thing we're, we're doing, which I haven't seen many in cafes, and I'm going to test it, and I'll let you guys know how it goes later on. We're going to have, like, paper menus at the entrance. So when you're in line, you get to see the full menu with time. Because I, I, I feel this pain in coffee shops. I go in, and there's a board there, and you're trying to squeak in and try to see the hundred percent. And then you get to the line, and like, I got no time. Like, there's a line behind me. Just give me what I know and move on. So I'm going to try the whole paper menu. Still have the board there, maybe. I'm not sure yet. But have people given time to look, not feel the pressure the person behind them is looking. Like they have the whole line to wait and select the drinks. And that's going to be my head. The strategy is have custom-made drinks, have paper menu, so they have time to like, oh, this sounds yummy. I want to try it. Uh, because if, again, if I just put custom drinks and I just put it in front of the register, my fear is people are going to be like, I don't got time. Give me the easy thing because I don't want to stop the person behind me. So we'll see how that goes. It's going to be interesting. I think that's a great idea. I saw it, uh, Gots. It's a burger chain or some fast food chain, but like a very fancy one in California. They do exactly that. They always have lines of people because, you know, they're trendy. 
and they put out the menus and you can pick it up. And for me, especially it's like, it's, you know, I can't read science that far away. You know, I don't wear glasses yet, but maybe I should. It makes me nervous. But if I have time to think about it, actually I order more usually than I, than I want to, because it's like, I want a burger. And I was like, oh, this fry sounds also good. This sounds good. So, you know, I order multiple things and they save time because when I go there, I know exactly what I want. So that's actually great. Uh, and you can even like, you know, if, if you want to save uh, on the, the paper, let's say you want to save the nature, you can also like, you know, like laminate them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, depends, you know, how nature conscious, you know, we are in California, so we are nature conscious. Well, that's exactly what I'm going to so, do. Uh, but that's a great idea. Yeah, but all... No, the, funny, that, that's exactly what I'm thinking. How can I make it reusable? Because it's a... It's an interesting okay. thing. Like if you do paper, it ends up being waste. I'm actually probably going to do those QR codes, but QR codes, people don't always have it. People told me like, why don't you use QR codes? Like it's just inconvenient. Like through COVID days, sure, people were getting used to them. People might get used to them, but like it's inconvenient. So I'll probably, actually my plan is to put a paper menu in the entrance and then in the tables have a QR code in case you're like, oh, I'm feeling like hungry and I don't want to go back and look at the menu, scan the QR code and maybe order from the tables and we can deliver it to your table if you're already sitting. Uh, Something that I'm still thinking, not figure it out, but like it's just how do we give people time to make a decision? And at the same time, that's an the menu is an opportunity for ourselves to differentiate from other coffee shops. Um, because if not, it's just people are like, it's very comfortable to say, I want a cortado or I want a cappuccino or I want a latte. That's a comfort zone. But if you see, maybe I'm not a syrup guy to be completely honest, but I've been to shops that I've seen some amazing drinks and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to give it a try because I feel like I want to have something different today. So that's. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I agree with you. Like, you know, I'm not a syrup guy. I actually hate syrups and just, you know, it's just too sweet and destroys my, I drink coffee black. I'm a, I'm a simple guy, but it's, if I open a cafe, I would love to play with specialty drinks for my customers because they might appreciate that. And that's cool. You know, it's not about you. It's about your customers. Right. And I think that somebody who does a great job kind of creating very creative drinks and make it fun, the names and everything is actually Dutch bros. You mentioned yeah. them. And I had a guest in a podcast before, and he said, oh, I used to work for Dutch bros. So I looked at them. I was like, this is fun. Even I want to try that, you know, drink or even, you know, and they, they always have, and you can see they like uh, vibe they emit from the social media. It's, it's, it's just like, yeah, we, we, we do coffee, but we are more fun. You know, we just, we do beverages then, you know, and that's, that's great. I think kudos to them. You know, they have their young people and I don't think they are cheap by the way. So. No, and that's, it is super interesting what you just mentioned. Like I was actually just talking to some of the team members that are joining uh, my coffee shop. And we're all super geeking coffee. And I was trying to explain to them, it's like, coffee geeks, we love black coffees. We like high acidity or we call it bright coffees and all these things. But the reality is like 95% of the people, if not more, they're like, just give me something very simple. It's a clean cup that is sweet. I, I know we talked about in previous podcasts about like your experiment between like the Brazil and the, I think it was a geisha or something. But it's the reality. That's what people like. And now same thing with sweet drinks. People are not going to a coffee shop. I mean, I want to say majority not going to a coffee shop because you're specialty. And that's why it's taking me a long time to realize about that. People are going for an experience. That's the second home or not. Well, actually, before it was the third home, it was the office home. Well, it was home, the office and the coffee shop. Now we remote workers is like home and the coffee shop. So now we're becoming the second home and we're an experience. So like people go to us because like they love how you treat them. So it's not just about if you're very like, 
oh, you got the best coffee, but you're not a nice person. I'm going to be more, more polite. You're not a nice person to the customers. They're going to be like, why would I come here? I'm coming here to chill, to enjoy my day, to get out of my house. And they're not coming because, oh, you got the best coffee. Yeah, that they, they, that, that matters. Don't get me wrong. But they want to have a holistic experience. Like they're not, they're not Sebastian drinking. And that's one of the hardest things for me to get out of my head. It's like, it's not just about me. It's like, what are my customers want? It's a big thing. And even when it comes about pricing, it's very hard to get out of this mindset. And a lot of people are like, I would not pay that. And I always tell my baristas, you wouldn't, but it doesn't mean they wouldn't. Like people a lot of times go to high-end restaurants and they're spending hundreds of dollars. And you might say, I would never pay hundreds of dollars, but you are not the customer. So you always have to get out of the head of like, oh, I would not pay, pay that much for that drink. He's like, people are going and spending like nine bucks on a smoothie. It's a freaking smoothie. Don't get me wrong. Is they're great, but like they're paying almost like a meal for a smoothie. And here we are, like, oh, people will not pay eight dollars for a latte. It's like, why not? They're paying for a smoothie today. Just make it the experience. So people are doing that. Uh, I, I see. I've seen a Google reel. Somebody, you know, there are these uh, audios you can combine with videos, and all of the audio, which you know, you can kind of download and whatever, was something about you know uh, that. My shit costs. Actually, no. no. Why do why do you, why do you think that your stuff cannot cost uh, money? Because let's say Gucci sells this for that much, whatever sells for that much. I mean, there's customer for everyone. And and you, <laughs> I looked at your prices. They're not horrible, man. So it's like you know, living in California, I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's normal. That's not even expensive. I mean, so I I don't think you should feel that you are expensive. I mean, don't compare yourself to Starbucks. You know, that's that's not really fair. Um, yeah, but, uh, what I wanted to ask you is, uh, how does one start cafe or in your case, how does one buy a cafe? So can you give us some tips or something which you learned that, boy, I did this mistake and I should, guys, you should be careful when you decide to buy a cafe from, for example, Valerian. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually like, it's a great question. Um, I not gonna lie, consider myself, I'm very, like you said earlier, I'm very geek. So when I start looking to buy a cafe, I did so much research about how to buy a business, how to evaluate a business. Honestly, I went to an accountant and I almost felt like I wanted to fire my accountant. I was like, dude, like I already knew all those things. I'm <laughs> really looking into the whole thing. Uh, uh, so there, it's not easy, it's, it's super easy to come to evaluation. I would say uh, at least at a, and the evaluation, these things are very, personal and people might put like this is a best practices and usually goes for like they call in like a multiplier of your uh profits so is that a lot of people look, look at their revenue i mean those are things that you want to look look how much how much they sell how much traffic they have because at the end of the day you're buying that location so that gives you kind of an idea of like oh i'm buying a great location that has lots of traffic with lots of potential but the multiplier comes into how much are you, is the business bringing into the table? So let's say you're making, I'm gonna make it simple. Let's say business makes $50,000. How much time will it take you to recover your investment? So if you think about the multiplier is gonna be, uh, and this is from the sellers, from the seller side, they're thinking, I'm gonna sell you my business that makes $50,000 for a three X multiplier. So that's three multiplied by 50, that's $150,000. You as the buyer says, okay, if I pay you 150 and you're making $50,000 a year, it's going to take me three years to make my money back. So that's usually the mentality. Sounds super simple. Challenges is comes to, okay, now the seller shows you the profit statements and you're like, oh, this guy's making X amount of money. 
And it's very scary because you're trusting that they're telling you the truth uh, and they're not inflating things. One of the things that, um, so I, I went through that whole exercise, look at all my assets, things that I didn't look for. I will tell people when you're buying equipment, I didn't look the age of the equipment. I was like, oh yeah, he has refrigerators, freezers, espresso machine, all these things. I bought the business and I swear, like in a month, a lot of like big expenses started coming in. Freezer broke, refrigerator broke, espresso machine broke. Everything started breaking because it was like a 10 year old coffee shop. So everything was like end of life. So I would tell people look, not just at the financials, also look at the equipment because they're telling you that, oh, they have these assets. So you know, at least, you know, I'm gonna have to have X amount of cash to replace this equipment that is gonna be going out pretty soon. So that was one of my mistakes. And two is when you're buying uh, profits, a lot of business owners, the reality is America, so people are putting expenses for their homes or they're trying to like manage their taxes in their business. I'm not saying you need to do that, but like sometimes you have a car and you're like, well, this is a business car. So you start deducting taxes and that. So you have to trust because they're like, oh, I have these other things that I put into the business, but they're really personal expenses. So you kind of produce them and these are the real profits from the business. Um, so, and the other thing that I did look was the cost of the, I was looking the whole picture my menu, how was he pricing things? When I bought it is when I started thinking like, oh crap, he's charging less than Starbucks. What the heck is going on here? Like, I mean, it's like, you would think it's an opportunity like, oh, well you increase prices. So now you make more profit than he was making. But then you have to think, yes, you increase prices and you might lose your customers that are not coming to you because you're cheap, not because you're great. So it's a lot of things that you have to look into it. It's not just the price. It's also like what kind of business you're buying, the equipment, and honestly, make a lot of due diligence into those uh, P&L statements. Like, make sure that they can back it up. They show you the POSs. Honestly, things that I cut up and we actually clean them up. There were a few transactions that were a lot bigger than, you know, a coffee shop transaction. You know, oh, yeah, they buy 80 bucks and then you find one that is for like 800 bucks. And like, dude, what, what's this? Like, why is that in the POS? And like, oh, yeah, there was a friend and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, remove it from the profit. So make sure to do the due diligence. That's one of the things that I would say. And do not rush it, to be honest. Uh, I would, that was, I think, my biggest mistake. It's a great location, but I would have not rushed it so much. They're always gonna have the, you're always going to have the pressure that you really, really want it because if you're buying a cafe, it's because you really, really want it. And you want to you wanna have, like, before going to the business negotiation, you want to have in your head, this is how much I'm willing to pay. And stick to it because you get emotional. You can start make, making decisions that you don't want to. I'm very good at it. With my wife and I, my wife is more, she's very visionary, but she's more emotional, nothing wrong with it. But she was like, oh, we should pay more. And I was like, no, this is my cutoff. This is what I'm going to negotiate. Um, it puts you in a situation of not being needy and at the same time being rational because you get excited. And you're like, ah, whatever, I just make it happen. I'll figure it out. So those will be my main points. Yeah, I, I agree about the, the setting up the price and sticking to it. Uh, I used to be very bad at this and my wife kind of anchored me on this like because I get excited about things very easy. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a cafe, great location. I have to have this. And then it's like, or I see something and my wife's usually like, uh, breathe on it, have four days thinking time, revisit. And usually in four days, I'm like, oh, what was I thinking? I just got endorphins in my head and going like, yeah, hey, you should do it. Yeah, so it, it's it's good. Those are, those are great tips, by the way. So if uh, somebody wants to buy a cafe, so, sounds like uh, solid. Um, okay, so now you, you, you bought yourself a cafe, you know, Christmas comes, you open a package, there's a cafe, great. Uh, 
you you told us already some of the surprises which you didn't like that was the equipment and the gear and the, maybe the pricing was not correct so today what do you think are your biggest expenses which everybody should be aware of that hey man this will this can make a big difference whether your your uh, cafe is profitable or not and you're smiling and i wonder what's going well, to say well that's actually very funny you say that that's i'm a numbers person to be honest i'm always thinking about numbers so biggest things you always have to think is Labor cost is one, uh, and it's going up everywhere nationwide. It's funny how everybody wants to get paid more, but we don't want to pay more outside. So it's like, oh yeah, now people want to make $15 an hour. That means everything that we buy is more expensive. So labor cost is one. Rent is another big one. You have to th think about rents. They always recommend, I haven't found a location like this, but they always, I've been reading a lot of people like, do not pay more than 10% of your annual set, uh, of your sales into rent. I have not been able to find that such location. That sounds phenomenal, but that's not reality. But if you can do that, awesome. Maybe you can find a location that is cheap, but you're so good at marketing that you just drive traffic there and your revenue is awesome. But that's what they recommend. So rent, uh, employees, and honestly, cost of goods is something that you can control a lot easier. So people think about cost of goods. So usually you can create recipes and figure it out. Do you have to price it higher? That's something in your control. I think the two hardest ones that you have to take care of again is the rent and the cost of labor. People do not realize about it, but like I would say ideally you want to keep your cost of labor between 20 to 25%. Uh, so meaning if you sell $100 an hour, you want to be paying 20 to $25 in, in an hour in employees. But you have to plan as well that traffic is not constant. So sometimes you have like eight to 10 is packed and then 10 to 11 is low and 11 to 12 is packed. And the hard thing is not predictable. So if you send somebody home, the moment they go home, everybody walks in and now you have horrible service. So I've actually, to be honest, I started thinking about more of a 30% uh, labor cost, to be honest, just to provide better service. Yes, it might cost me a little bit more, but if I provide better service, in theory, I should have more sales because people are coming more back to me. So it's all about how do you keep that uh, re recurring sale coming. Coffee shops, we survive on uh regulars most locations yes there's locations airports or tourist areas that's different but most locations we depend on our daily customers so do everything and anything to keep them that's your bread and butter you lose one customer a customer might be a thousand dollars in sales are you pretty easy say they come five times a, they come say 10 times a month and they buy ten dollars that's already 100 bucks multiply that by 12 months that's twelve hundred dollars so when you're if you ever have an employee mystery on regular just let them know that's twelve hundred dollars sales that's paying for the salary so just make sure to do anything possible i would say 30 percent max on cost of labor which is hard especially with raising salaries but yeah those will be the main things I wonder how this adds up in California because here I would say baristas start around 20 bucks plus minus a little bit. I mean, my son took up a job at packaging coffee uh, in a local roastery. Not me because I was like, dude, you have to do it on, without me. Some, so it's kind of cool. Uh, kudos to him because packaging coffee sucks. I hate it. And it's his summer job and he yeah. is earning 16 bucks an hour for packaging coffee that, you know, like I, I know when I was running Unleashed Coffee, I was, I was paying 16 bucks would be like, 
wow, that's crazy. So I packaged everything and I had to sell the company because I didn't well, like it. Well, the other thing that people do not okay. consider um, that is interesting is not just the salary. There's like things that you have to think about. There's like employees insurance. It's not terrible, but it adds up. And then you have business insurance that actually, it could be significant to be honest. People don't think about that cost. It's, it's, a, it's a chunk of change. I mean, honestly, we're talking about thousand, two thousand bucks, depending on where you are, what your landlord requirements. A landlord might say you need to have a million dollars uh, business insurance. Uh, so that's another one. Honestly, electricity, people do not think about that, but like all this coffee equipment, heating up water, it's expensive. Like my utility bills are expensive. I'm like, how in the world is this coffee shop consuming so much electricity? But these are things that are people forget when they're pricing their models. It's like, yes, there's employees, there's business insurance, there's electricity, there's there, all the utilities that you have to pay for. Uh, again, the cost of goods is a little bit easier. You can control that. So just make sure to keep it under control and make sure that you're pricing your things right. But those are the things that people do not even think about. It's like, well, your monthly is your lease, say $2,000 lease, $3,000 lease. And then all of a sudden, your utilities are another 1000 bucks. Now you're talking about an extra 1000 bucks that you didn't account for. Uh, so those are another surprise that you want to make sure that you're accounting for. Ask the question, how much utility bill? Uh, on a monthly basis, look at, the, at them and just account for them when you're doing your pricing and your monthly cost. Awesome. You already mentioned something which I'm, I'm curious uh, about is the staff and your team. Uh, first of all, where do you find these people? Uh, how do you train them or how they become baristas? Uh, I would say that's actually, yeah. to be honest, I believe that's the most underrated challenge of owning a coffee shop. I think like if there were no team members, it will be extremely, not easy, but it will be a lot easier to manage a coffee shop. And it's because like it's challenging, especially through COVID, we lost most of our team. Unfortunately, we had to let them go. We kept trying to keep them and like, we didn't know how long it was gonna happen. So we ended up having to let go of the team. And after COVID, it was like, everybody's getting more money with unemployment. So we're like, how in the world do we find people that wanna work when they can make more money staying at home doing nothing? So that was challenging. And then everybody was offering, like the big corporations offering a thousand dollar bonus just for signing up to be an employee. So that was extremely challenging times. Uh, but to find people, to be honest, there's uh, this app called uh, Homebase. This used for clocking or clock out. They actually have a way to publish your jobs and it publishes on Facebook in, I think it does multiple channels. So I usually use that. I look other apps to publish them. Um, I've been terrible, but I've seen people posting in social media. Uh, also, I get constant emails from students just because I'm in campus. Are you hiring? I, if I'm out of my hiring, I always get back to them. Like, send me your resume. If something pops up, I'll get back to you. And I usually keep a list of those students. So when something pops up, I look for them. But to be honest, hiring students is not terrible. It's just that they're going to be a turnover and they're going to call you. Oh, I'm sick. They, they, they'll call you at six in the morning. I'm sick because they went party the previous day. And sometimes they think you're dumb and you don't realize that they were having a fun time, which is, is, is tough. Not all, not all. Because yeah, we, never we never did the same thing. We never, we never went to party on a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday night and to call Sunday off. Uh, so that's a challenging part. Uh, so, I actually changed it a little bit more to start hiring more, like I would say, professional baristas. And what I mean by professional baristas is people that want to make a living out of coffee because they have the passion. Challenge with that in America, I think it's a little bit different in Europe, is that making a living out of a barista job in America is extremely hard. 
Uh, it's just the reality. You're going to be making, say, $20 an hour in California. Is money, but it's not. When you're looking at the rents in California, it's very hard. You're going to have to have roommates. And if you're thinking about a family, it's going to be hard to have a living out of a barista job. Um, so that's something else that I'm looking into my business about doing like a profit sharing model where uh, full-time members um, have a, we will share some of the profits with the baristas and the vision with this, I'm still working through the details is even like thinking like owners. Okay, if I'm mean to the customer, it's not going to come back. It means I'm going to make less money. And it's not just going to be profit sharing, but it's going to be profit sharing based on goals. That's what I'm thinking about right now. So say we make X amount of money, you get 5%. More money, we get 6%. Or at least 6% get dispersed across the team. Uh, and it will be done. It's not just like, oh, you join, you come to profit sharing. Also, you have to show loyalty to the company. You're behaving as an owner. So that's some of the details that I'm trying to figure it out. But it's also to give that kind of opportunity. And I think if I was a barista, I would love to be like, I don't have the money to open a coffee shop, but I can work for this dude and take some of the profits with myself. So... And honestly, I've been thinking about it long term in my head. I will probably reserve a percentage to share with the leadership team that I'm thinking about. So let's say we have a trainer lead or a roster lead or something like people that are doing more jobs, like really owner hats. Be like, hey, you know what? You guarantee 5% of the profits plus the pool that is going to be divided across the team. So it's kind of giving an ownership into the business without giving actually staking the business because that gets tricky. If I give like a 5% ownership in a business and tomorrow they want to leave or we're not happy or we had a dispute, it's like, well, do I buy you back? It just gets tricky. Uh, so I'd rather just do the uh, profit sharing, which you're still an owner. You don't, you, if you leave tomorrow, you don't have a stake in my company and I don't have to deal with how do we break up that, that relationship, but you have profit sharing. So you say, you get the best part, you get the profits. <laughs> you don't get the troubles that come with buying equipment or fixing equipment. You get just like, oh, I make money. You make money. I make more money. You make more money. So that's the whole idea right now. This is an excellent idea, I think. I don't know how how it's going to work, but I'm toying with this idea for a long time for green plantation. Unfortunately, Europeans are a little bit less uh, entrepreneur entrepreneurial. Yeah, they they they, uh, they want their salary. They want their social benefits done goodbye. But there are some people, and if you find those people. They are very good uh, to have. Uh, and I'm thinking about it myself because there are examples like in, here in the uh, United States like or in California, there's Arizimendi. It's a bakery. It's a chain, I think, of two or three stores. And they, are, they call themselves uh, the uh, employee-owned company, whatever that means. I don't know. Uh, there's also another example is the uh, flower company, gosh, uh, King Arthur Flower. They also call themselves employee-owned company. So I'm, I'm kind of like looked into that models a little bit, but there's not too much written on it. But my idea is similar than yours. Uh, so there will be, let's say, X amount of profit put aside every year, let's say 50%, or whatever I decide. And like a substantial, not like the 1% or whatever, like substantial, like, and this will be the part we, we share, the full-time workers on the end of the year, or every six months, whatever, you know, we do some profit uh, and loss statements and we just distribute that. And this way, you're much higher motivated to stay, this much higher motivated to do everything. If you are a barista, but you make good photos, you are also the social media guy. If you are a roaster, but you know, you love organizing, 
yeah, you are also the guy who organized our lab, and it's all immaculate, you know. So I think, and you know, the the idea came because, well, I admit it, there's a lot of things going on with green plantation right now. Um, I was last time in Slovakia three months ago, uh, sorry, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and Pooh hit the fan between me and my partner, and it's just like there's a lot of major decisions to make, and I'm not there. And I'm how can I find somebody, some team who will run it on a very small salary, because now right now we cannot afford anything else. Not not that I, you know I'm taking all the money. We just cannot afford anything else. But it's motivated enough to change it because I can see how easy it is to change it and work the asses off. So this, your model is kind of like something which brewing in me and finding a good solution for that. Of course, in Europe, taxation would be other thing is like how to, you know, think of it different way. Because in Europe, we have to pay not only tax, but social benefits, health insurance, et cetera, et cetera, which will be changes the whole model. And if you are the owner of a company, let's say LLC, and I take out my profits, I don't have to do that. All I do yeah. is uh, pay the dividend tax. So I don't know. I have to figure this out tax-wise. And also, like in the United States, by the way, you can have a we can have options, which is like optionally owning the company get the profits, but you don't get the share. And options many times can uh, mature. Let's say that person is super valuable to you for five years. Yeah, I mean, they deserve to be part of your partners. Yes, and I'm talking to lawyers as well as well and, and accountants because like there's multiple ways. Like, I think like you said, the challenge is for an, an owner is like you have to close the books every time you want to do profit sharing. Um, lawyers were probably the same thing. They were like, well, and it's not a big deal. That, that can yeah. be figured out. That's just a process. But like, how do you protect yourself? Because really, you need to protect yourself. If somebody said like, why didn't I get my profit sharing? So it's like, how do you set up like parameters? Like you just said in my head as well, like you said, that's the whole vision is funny. Similar kinds of things I like. I was thinking the same thing because I'm like, I, I'm not very good with social media. I'm to be honest, I have my other job. So it's hard for me to be there the whole time. So it's like, I'm thinking about when I, do the profit sharing is like okay you have if you do want to participate in the profit sharing you have to wear this role as well like maybe you're great at social media you manage the social media or you're great at barista training okay you're gonna have barista training you're gonna do the manuals you're gonna make sure everybody's onboarded and like give more responsibility like owner responsibilities if you want to participate in the ownership uh, um, profit sharing because you're really sharing a business profits like they're not putting any cash in they're putting their efforts. So I want to appreciate their efforts and ownership of the company, but given them a stake of the profits of the company. Um, but like, again, and so the lawyers were like thinking always about like the things that we normal people don't think about. Like what happens if somebody comes and say, you don't think they're performing. So you're like, well, I don't want to share. Let's say you're sharing 50% of your profits or 20%, whatever it is. Um, you have a team of five members. Why would you want to give a percentage out of the... 14 members that are doing a good job when you have a team member that is just being like heavyweight. You want to be fair and distribute the profits for the people that are working for them. But the lawyers are like, how do you protect yourself under that? You have to document it. So if they come back to you, be like, hey, why the heck, man? I need my profits. You need to give it to me. The lawyers are always protecting you. Like you have to have clauses that say, we reserve the, prop the, 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 the right of profit sharing because it's your right. But you also want to be clear to them, like here's the uh, expectations for you to be participant of the profit sharing and you have to be clear with them and it's not about thinking any of your employees you the whole goal of profit sharing is actually to make your employees successful because you want to stay with you but at, at the same time like i said like they say you're sharing a hundred thousand dollars 
you do, and everybody's going to get 20. I'm not, oh, I wish it was like that right now. I'm not going to say that that's happening, but let's say you're going to share 20. If you want to share 20, let's say across yeah, five yeah, employees, yeah. wouldn't you rather share 25 across four employees that are doing an amazing job that you know their long-term value? And to be honest, a fail would be, we should have gotten rid of that employee that has snacks being super valuable, but the reality is life. And sometimes you don't have time or you forget about it or they're just coasting and you don't do it. Uh, that's not a good management strategy, but like you want to be able to say, you're not doing your duties. You're not make, meeting the expectations. You're not going to get the profession. The rest of the team is going to get a bigger chunk. Well, you, you, you can make tiers. You can make like, you know, let's say you can call mm -hmm. it the, the, the manager's club or the, you know, the, so people who qualify for that and people who are, let's say, new employees, they will work their asses off to qualify for the, uh, the stupid name, manager's club or whatever you call it. And that club can decide whether they want that partner or not, right? So let's say partner's club sounds better than manager's club. Because if they see that, oh, there's a potential in this person that can bring us more money and we become much better with this person, then yeah, we want, want that person in or not, you know, so it, it can be, it can be a really motivating and strong um, incentive for people. How to do it? I, I think we have to make more research into King Arthur's Flower and Arizimendi or other similar companies, how they do it. I, I'm 100% sure that many companies, I can call bullshit on them because they have some kind of like, oh yeah, here's 1% back or whatever. But many of these are actually doing great job and you can see it on them. They marketing, they like feel of the branding. Like King Arthur Flower for me has a great branding. They, they, it just happened. Like one day, this boring flower making company became this super trendy, you know, we are your flower. Like if you are into baking, it's us. And with all the recipes, all the social media, all their new packaging, you name it, man. It was like poof, revolution, you know. Of what you just said, because even... I believe Chipotle does that to get promoted as a manager. The whole team has to work for you to be the manager. And I love that idea that is involving the team to make decisions. It's not just like, oh, I want to give profit sharing. It's like, hey, we as a team decide together who should be part of this special club uh, that gets more profit sharing or something um, because it just empowers the team to be like, hey, we have to be so critical and really hire the best and retain the best because it just means more money for everybody. Like you bring somebody into that club, yes, you're gonna have to divide the slice to an extra person, but if that extra person makes more money than the slice that they're getting into, everybody gets more money. And so you want everybody to be thinking like, yes, this person is gonna be great, bring value, bring more money, we all make more money. So I love that idea. I have not thought about that, but now you can like, I'm gonna go talk to my daughter, like, how do we make this part of it? Like, how do we make this part of it? Yeah, man, we figure this out together and we can have both benefits. Like you apply it on your company, I apply it on my company. So, yeah, cool. All sister companies, but they already haven't mentioned anything like that. Green plantation and cafe tal means like a coffee plantation. So, we, we always joke that it's like, like we're like cousin companies. We're like both plantations, we're both green plantations or cafe tals. Okay, I want to talk about roasting a little bit. So, uh, I knew, know that you started to roast your dad's coffee. Uh, tell us a little bit the story. Like, why did you decide that you want to roast coffee? And how did it change the math for your cafe? And what venues did it open for you? Yeah, so I started coffee roasting, I want to say it's been like almost like 
it's gonna be a year I gotta roast it, but to be honest, I started like really roasting for my cafe about six months ago. First time at the beginning was just figuring out the kirks and how to make it work. Something easier than, it's not that complicated, but when you don't have a lot of like mentorship or guidance, it's very hard to do. And you start, especially me, I start overthinking everything. Uh, and that's actually what I went to, the, to one of my classes. <laughs> yes, I went to Valerian's uh, actually roasting business class, which is amazing to be honest. Uh, it gets you out of your mind and really just thinking about the business because again, I think most coffee people start thinking about like, oh, is it the perfect coffee? Is it? And um, yeah, they, they, they class up a lot. And to be honest, I started with roasting because of that mindset. I was like, I have actually a great partner who was doing roasting for me. To be honest, it was a, little, a lot less headache. I was like, I would just give him the coffee. He would roast it. He would just land it in my coffee shop. It was just beautiful, done. And the initial mindset, to be honest, was like, well, I think I can optimize the curves more than he, than I, that I cannot do a lot better job than he does. So I want to do it. And yes, I know. I, I think that's a bad motivation. I could probably just give him the feedback, like, here's what I want you to do. Uh, or let's experiment a little bit different curves. And I could have gotten that from him because I was just paying him like a, a 12 roasting fee. Um, so I got it for the wrong reasons, but I got into it. I actually, I love it because I'm a coffee nerd. So it's like, great. I get to do my experimentation. I do it all. I don't regret it, but it actually opened a couple of venues. Now people see, oh, this guy roasts. There's some weird thing about marketing that people are like, this guy roast. How can I buy your whole, how can I do wholesale with you? So we don't have a lot of wholesale accounts, but we're not working with them. Or we're starting to hear interesting people like doing wholesaling with us uh, just because now we have a roaster. But we always had the beans. People knew we had the beans. That is a fourth generation. But people were never said like, can I buy wholesale from you? They were like, for some reason, didn't click. So it's opening more venues now for like the wholesale side, uh, which is great. That was a great uh, secondary effect that I never thought of. To be honest, I think that's the biggest benefit of me owning the grocery. And I don't know if it's gonna be the same for everybody. I think in my case, it's just because people hear the story about like it's farm to cup and people get excited about it. And now it's like just not farm to cup, it's farm to cup and they actually do the whole processing. I don't know what it is. Something happened because it's always been farm to cup, just somebody roasted. Now it's farm to cup and I roast. And now there's interesting wholesaling, which I take it. I will not complain about that. The economics, honestly, they're hard. It, it, it does a benefit, but I don't know. It's, I would not say the cost benefit is worth it because it's a lot. Now you're trying to do two jobs. Now you're a cafe. Now you're a roaster. And now you're like, oh shit, we're running out of coffee. Let me get more work. Let's maybe, let me roast more coffee. Before it was just magical. It was just like, I place order this day. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes like every coffee shop, like, oh snap, we had a big traffic. You're calling out in your order day to your roaster and your probably your roaster wants to kill you because you're like, your orders are Monday. Yes, he, he does. <laughs> it's Thursday afternoon. I just turned on my roaster and you're asking me to turn on again my roaster just for you. And now that I roast, I see the pain. You have to preheat. It's not like it takes two seconds. It's not that simple. You have to affect your schedule. But anywho, that was the benefit of having somebody roast the coffee for you. I try not to do that often, but the reality is sometimes you've got an event that you're not planning from around the university that spikes your traffic and you're like, crap, I'm running out of coffee. So I didn't have to think about those things. That was the pain of my wholesale roaster. Uh, so again, I, I, I say that people that are thinking about doing both, really think it through. If you have the time, the passion, the economics, to be honest, uh, if I was not a farmer direct, 
probably I would rather just focus in selling at the shop. Uh, if I had the time, I would think maybe wholesale is a good idea, but it's just because I have time to do that, but maybe focus more on the marketing side, to be honest, that's what I'm trying to work on. Marketing and actually pushing sales. Roasting coffee is a different business. Uh, it requires more time. And that's the, I'm not gonna lie, my wife would say that's one of the most challenging things. Like now it's like, I used to have my weekends off because that's when I work Monday to Fridays. And now it's like, okay, Sunday it's time to roast because it's Arizona. And if I roast at five, 6 p.m., still outside like a hundred degrees or more. So my gar so it's extremely warm. And so I'm always trying to think, how can I roast first thing in the morning when a little bit cooler? Uh, so now my weekends are sometimes taken and my wife is like, well, now you don't have time for the family. You're always roasting, like you're always doing something. And he's like, so I don't know if it's worth sometimes. I mean, and the biggest thing for me was also here, but in advice, roasting size. I didn't buy the right, I bought a roaster that in my head it was enough for my shop. But always think, I honestly, after this, I always even tell people like, oh, I'm going to buy a five kilo. Like, just do the math. Oh, well, I can roast in six hours. Great. Six hours a day? Yes. Do you want to be sitting six hours a day in front of your roaster? Or you would rather be investing in marketing and selling coffee? It sounds very sexy. This was my thought process. Oh, I'm going to buy a roaster. I can roast in five hours. And I'm going to have a full-time job. I can roast in five hours on the weekend. Sounds great. Uh, now, like, I wish I could roast in one batch. I swear to God, if I could roast the first batch or two batches or in an hour, it would be awesome. But now, like, five hours, and oh, well, the beginning was like, oh, I get to practice, get better roasting technique. Rent a roaster, get somewhere, ask somebody to rent you the roaster to learn how to roast, and then go and get your big roaster so you can do invest time in growing the business instead of being like roasting. That takes time. And to be honest, it sounds very sexy. It becomes very monotonous. You're following your, your line. You're trying to roast at the same time. And it's not sexy. And eventually you're like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. And it's, it's great. You can go copy. That's the fun part. Actually, the fun part, go copy, make sure that it's tasting how you want it. But roasting is not too sexy. Don't get me wrong. It's fun. It's fun to experiment, but it just becomes like you're following a line and you're like, I wish I could just automate this thing to follow the line that I define and go work on my business or go spend time with my family. So make sure to buy the right roaster do not think about roasting six the less time you have to invest in the roaster you're gonna love it i swear to god well thank you i i, I love this you're very passionate about that it sounds great first of all roasting is sexy man all the time i find roasting very meditating but it's not efficient when it comes to your business right so you have to realize that that i love to roast i, I just love to roast i can roast all the day and if it wouldn't hit my you know health because you know roasting a lot of coffee lots of smoke around you know i'm older i'm not so young plus efficiency of the business you know that's you know that's the most important part because we are building business on the end of the day it's not you know like uh valerian playing around which sometimes happens but you know that's that's different um, you're in a lab i get I, that like if i was in a lab i would um, love that in a lab i'll be like oh i get to roast you're fun but like, like i would say for business owners like true. if you're doing it for like home roasting awesome that sounds phenomenal because you're not thinking about a business behind the scenes but when you have a business it's like now you're divided attention between your coffee shop business and the roasting business and that time could be being invested in marketing or pushing sales or training your team there's so many things to be done in a coffee shop that like be very mindful where you invest your time and money so if you decide to go with a roasting and a coffee shop, try to figure out 
a very good size that allows you not just to roast your coffee, but at the same time, think about, I didn't think about this. Now I'm roasting on people like, I want wholesale. And I'm like, oh man, now looking to buy a bigger roaster. And to be honest, the difference in price between, uh, say a three kilo or a five kilo roaster and a 10 kilo roaster is not linear. So like, let's say a, a five kilo roaster is 30,000. The 10 kilo is 35, 38,000. So you're doubling your production for like less than 20% of your, of your money. So like really think it through if you're going to do it to get the size. We have a, there was a classmate that took a class with Valerian and I, and I, to this day, I still giving crap because he ended up going with a probe at five kilo. And I'm like, he's like, oh, I have labor, whatever. And like, to this day, I'm like, you should have bought the 10 kilo. It honestly was not that much difference money and it would have saved headaches, time and everything. Who is this? Uh, CJ. <laughs> CK bought a five kilo. I remember him calling the company from here to order a 10 kilo. So he ended up with five kilo. Yeah, he ended up with the five kilo. And to this day, I still tell him like, why? He's like, oh, labor in the Philippines is not so expensive. But like, it will just give you less of a headache. You can use the same person to package instead of to hire two people. So one roast, one packages, and it gives you growth for your business. So there is, honestly, I will always advise over oversizing yourself. Do not go crazy and buy a 60 kilo from the get-go because your batch is going to be a whole bag of coffee and that's not worth it. But think about something that you can scale and even if you don't scale, you'll be like, oh, I got roasting in an hour versus I got roasting in six hours. It's like, it's, it's time. And you don't think about it, but over time, over that full year, is six hours multiplied by how many batches you run, how many roasts you do a year. That is a lot of time and money you could be spending somewhere else. Yeah, so, you know, I learned the hard way because people don't realize on a, on a 15-kilo roaster, you can roast eight kilos, but you cannot roast on a five kilo roaster, 15 kilos. And, you know, I'll just buy it from my cafe, just, okay. So that's your dream. That's what you want to do in your life. You want to roast five kilos of coffee for your coffee cafe. I don't think so because you fast realize that, oh, there can be wholesale. Maybe there will be some other cafe who's interested in your coffee because they like your story or they like your blue eyes. doesn't matter why, but they will go to your coffee. Hopefully they just buy your, you know, they want to buy from you and they say, I want 300 kilos. 600 pounds, whatever, a month. And you go like, oh, what now? You know, <laughs> it's, I don't know, for me, it's always like, you know, it, when a person says, uh, oh, that size is enough for me, I always go like, really? Are you building a business? I mean, that size is enough for you. It's a, it's a saying like, you know, you're building a Starbucks and you say, you know what, this tiny store is enough for me. I don't want to do. And if I do more, I'll buy. It's like, no, you won't because you will not have money. I mean, I had, actually, I was recording yesterday a podcast with Rahul, and uh, he, he's in India, and he bought a five-kilo geeson, oh, sorry, six-kilo geeson, and very short time, he said, bought 15 kilo. He's lucky. He has investments, but he admitted himself that this would be a very hard leap if he would, you know, not have that money available for him because he's growing like, you know, mushrooms after rain. Good for him. He's a great concept. But thinking small, it's like, why would you start a business if you think small? It's like, I don't understand. Anyways, yeah, even, uh, the never, never ending topic. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I, I would okay. just tell people, I would never buy anything under 10 kilo, to be honest. I actually, I've been thinking about this. I, if I could start again, I would start with a 15 kilo, even though I know a lot of roasters that start with a 10 kilo or a P12 or whatever. Don't get me wrong. It's a good size unless you scale. But again, it goes back to like the difference in price because I look at them, it's not much different. 
I will go to the larger size, even up, I think the Pro Bar goes to 12 to 25 or something. The difference in price is not significant. I mean, it's, don't get me wrong, it's a charcoal change. But I've been thinking I would not do less than 15 kilo. If I could start again, because in a 50 kilo, like you said, you can do a kilo. If you're roasting for a business, less than a kilo, less than a kilos a week, you should not be buying a roaster, period. You should not. No, no. So no. I would not start for, again, 10 minimum, minimum, ideally 15 plus roaster. I, I would not start less than that. And I know people be like, oh, I don't have the money. But if you don't have the money, maybe you should not be roasting right now. Maybe get a loan, get investors or do white labeling or have somebody roast for you. It's not worth the money on time. Or I, I hate this. I want to try a concept. It's like, do you really have time trying things out? I mean, the, the time is something which never nobody gives you back. Time is super, super valuable. Do we have time to waste on this? You do it or not? I mean, there's this saying which I don't really like. It's fail fast. It's like, I don't want you to fail, but if you do, do it fast. Actually, it's for me more like realize very fast you don't want to do this because it's not for you or whatever, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with it. And, you know, I get a lot of poo for this uh, uh, opinion and hard love. But first of all, thank you for all the nice words you said about the course. Uh, you guys got the version three, I think, and now it's version six, which is much better. So I'm sorry that, you know, you didn't get the cool, but based on your input, and this was a great group, based on the input, we really improved the course even more. And now I have actually a chart where people go through it and I say, hey, Sebastian, how much you want to earn? I put the number in and we go down. It's like half the exercise and it gives you everything. It gives you how much coffee you have to sell. It gives you how big roster you want, you should consider to buy. And people are just like, okay. And as you said, it's easy to talk about it and there's a lot of opinions, but if I put the numbers in front of you, go like, oh yeah, okay, I see, you know, so CK, I'm disappointed, man. Oh, five <laughs> kilo, that's just, now you read it on him. I will, I'll write to him after the podcast. I was like, hey man, what did you do? <laughs> I remember him calling Probat from here. I was like, oh, that would be great. You know, he, he listened yeah. and it's like, he ended up with five kilo, boy. Uh, anyway, I hope, I hope he will earn enough money very soon so he can upgrade to a hundred kilo one, so. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about coffee because it's not only coffee what you sell. Uh, what are the other products what people should consider selling because they have nice margins and they can make your economy uh, better? Uh, which is which of those are easier and harder to sell? Yeah, that's a great question. To be honest, it's something that I'm also working through. So I'll tell you a little bit about my cafe. When I bought it, we sold smoothies. I'm going to lie. And I'm very proud of them. They're concentrated smoothies. We have a natural smoothie shop like two blocks away. When they opened, they opened like six months ago. And I'm like, well, great. I was, I was doing it for the community because they still came and bought it. So I was like, I'm going to take the smoothies away. Now they have a smoothie next door. I don't really enjoy smoothies. They're not my, they, I don't feel proud of them. They still sell. So I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I keep selling them because they make money. Uh, might, might change that, but I think what I was going with that is really one thing that there's articles around there. Starbucks sells more refreshers than coffee. So that was mind blowing when I saw that article. Uh, and I'm working on that side. I have a few like Aguas Frescas, which is really like a juice, a Latin American juice. Like we have like a pineapple, mango, Aguas Frescas, watermelon. They're, they're very good. They sell. Uh, I probably need to do better marketing of them, but they still sell quite a bit. And especially in the summer months, they're like big time sellers uh, because they're refreshing. And 
uh, that's one thing that I'm working more, how to build more refreshers, knowing Starbucks does it, it sucks to say, but like Starbucks, as much as I, a lot of things I don't like about them, they've done a great thing. First of all, they introduced America to coffee. Most people know coffee because of Starbucks. So they've done a great job of making it public and accessible and people going to coffee shops. So we have a lot to thank Starbucks as much as people hate them. They, uh, then the refreshers, they started with the refreshers. Now everybody goes to Starbucks to get a refresher. So it, it sucks, but I don't know if they created this trend, but it's a bandwagon that as a coffee shop, I think people need to consider. And the other item that I always fought against it was food. Um, baristas, I hate to say it, they hate to make food. And for a business owner, it makes it very hard to hire a kitchen or a chef unless you're very big. Because now, like, you have to have enough sales of food to pay for that chef. So for us, for example, right now, we have the staff rotates. We do have a person dedicated to the kitchen that is also trained for the front. And she creates the recipes. And I always try to, like, how do we make very simple stuff? You don't have to be crazy because you're still not a restaurant. But you want to have food. Because people come to a place and they're, like, if they're studying or having a meeting, there's nothing worse. If you think about it, it's the whole experience. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, they don't have food. Let me walk away. That's terrible. That is a terrible experience. And I tell my baristas, like, even we call it upselling, it's not upselling. You're giving people choices. They walk in, they order coffee, and you'd be like, hey, would you like to have a breakfast sandwich? We have this jalapeno cheddar, blah, blah, blah. It sounds amazing. You're giving people choices. And people might not be thinking they're hungry, but they might be like, oh, yes, I'm actually hungry. That sounds yummy. Guess what? You make more money. The customer is happier. No harm made. Worst case scenario, tell you like, no, man, I'm, I'm full. I'm good. Whatever. Guess what? You give them a choice. They say no. No harm made. Nothing loses. Nobody's sad. But and food margins are a little bit trickier. They're not as big as coffee. So again, that's not your main business. You want to have some yummy, simple things for people to come in. Again, I hesitated. I'm still working in the kitchen. Um, I learned a lot about this. I was, I want to say three years ago, I was in Kiev. Uh, fun, sad, sad fact was like it was three years exactly before the war started. Um, and it was amazing. Like Kiev is a beautiful place. People are amazing. The coffee shops in, uh, I've never been to, that was my first exposure to Eastern Europe was beautiful. Like they were themed. Every coffee shop was different. One was like a London based coffee shop. You walked in and you feel like in London, their food was inspired in London. The other coffee shop was like a, a bee. It was like a bee theme coffee shop. It was yellow and, and black. They have amazing uh, dessert. Everybody will go for great coffee, great desserts. And every single coffee shop has some sort of theme and amazing food. And I was like, man, this doesn't happen in America often. In America, people are always like, oh, I just want to have the coffee shop and sell a toast. But when I went to Europe, I'm like, this is amazing. Like you can really, and think about coffee like wine. People always think about wine and food pairing. Coffee is the same thing. Think about it. Like we don't think about wine pairing. You have a very natural, say, blueberry-ish forward uh, cafe, coffee. Why not think about how does that pair with some amazing food? I mean, you can eat it with everything, but like, if you start thinking also about like food pairing with coffee, you're now thinking the wine experience. Everybody in specialty coffee says, how can we compete with wine? Well, guess what? We have to be like wine. How do we start pairing coffee with food? It's a thing that I'm still exploring. Gets me excited. Because honestly, there's nothing better than like, yes, you can go and taste coffee. It's amazing. But there's nothing better than having a good piece of coffee, a good drink with amazing food. At least that's what we do in Colombia. Breakfast is cafe con leche. It's a cafe au lait. 
uh, and that's very it's a very sweet cup of coffee because it's a very plain cup, clean cup and you have like we call it pan de bonos which is like cheese bread it's amazing or you have it with like your breakfast cafe con leche goes great with your, your eggs and toast uh, and it's a great pairing so i think there's a big opportunity again increase your average ticket price which if you think about it people don't think about this making customers is very hard increasing the number of customers so that's a tough challenge but if you can make more money from every customer that walks in golden i mean that's like easy money that's the easiest money you can make increase that average ticket price from that customer coming in if you increase it by say two bucks and you have the average ticket price and you have ten thousand sales a year that's twenty thousand dollars extra without any extra marketing it's the same people walking in just paying a little bit more so that's a thing that i would tell people think about how again upselling is just upselling it's creating a better customer experience making you more choices more money for you i would just it's a no brainer in Europe, you know, in, in Bratislava, uh, we sell espresso, I think, for 150 euros. That's how many espressos you have to sell in order to make money, right? Because, you know, in Europe, we drink more espressos. Like, a lot of people drink clean, like, clean, like, you know, pure or cappuccinos, which is, again, not that expensive because you, you know, cannot make it more expensive because that's, you know, everybody sells it for that much. But what you can do is sell croissants or sell cookies or whatever, and those can, you know, rank up so they'll make a specialty beverage with some alcoholic beverage because, yeah, in Europe, we are crazy. You can actually sell alcohol without insane permits and stuff, you know. So, uh, and it's fun, you know, it's, the, the, the drinks can be uh, interesting. But first of all, like, we never do politics on this podcast, you know, uh, very, very rarely. But Ukraine hearts with you guys you know i'm a i'm from central europe i feel with them i know slovakia my homeland went through similar changes in 90s like they were going through and we were so positive about the future like we were so like you know when the european union welcomed us we also nato members when welcomed us and we the people decided which way to go because there were political parties which were like oh let's go towards russia you know let's go towards uh, West. So, and we people decided who we vote for and which direction, and luckily nobody attacked us. So, I'm so sorry what's happening in Ukraine, and I hope the situation will get resolved and we can visit their amazing cafes together and uh, visit the coffee scene there. So, that's yeah, that, so it, politics. Topic. It is a tough sorry. one. Like, it hit my heart. It is a hard one. It hit my heart when I saw it happen. I was like, wow. Like, especially when you see like just normal humans living around families being bombed is like there's no there's no right way to do that like it just there's nothing like it's just destroying a no. beautiful country it's heartbreaking uh but my heart with them like they're yeah they're super strong and i'm super proud i mean yeah no i was just gonna say that like they're so strong and i admire the ukrainians for like standing with their countries like i have a lot of friends there uh fighting the war which is terrible but they're being strong they're defending the the, the freedom uh and it's it's very heartbreaking, but at the same time, like I'm, I'm with them. And hopefully, that this thing will be over. Uh, I don't think there, there's any, there's never a win in a war. So it's gonna be casualties. I cannot wait until it's over. Yeah, and you know the life will never be the same. That's the sad thing. Like I was working a post-war zone, and I remember, you know, how it changed people. And it's so sad that there was this positive little country. Well, they <laughs> pretty big country, but positive country in 
in Europe and this happens, it's just mind-blowing and separates people, separates families. Even in Central Europe, people have different opinions what's happening. But for me, it's very clear. Anytime you have an independent country and somebody attacks you, that's it. I have a lot of Russian friends who 100% disagree with what's happening. First of all, they don't want to send their friends to war fighting for ridiculous cause. Mm-hmm. And second of all, they just you know find that this is a shame. And I hope that you know even Russian people realize it sooner or later. Uh, anyway, back to coffee. Uh, we agree that we need to visit Kiev after the war, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you mentioned margins, and I was wondering that uh, what is a healthy margin when you should consider, let's say, do food. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe how about buying the food from somebody? Uh, what kind of margins shall you uh, think of? When does it make sense? Those are actually great questions, things that I have to learn the hard way Thank and you. educate myself. Uh, so I say when you're doing your own food, usually, uh, and I, this is from restaurant business, I've taken a lot of classes and try again, I'm very geeking to these things. So I start looking, they always talk about having a cost of goods. So meaning like the cost of making that item, uh, being 30%, 35%, if you're 40 or maybe too high. Uh, so try to keep it as low as possible. And some items, to be honest, you can have even better margins. Like, honestly, like people don't realize about it, but toast and avocado is a freaking big seller. And it's like, you make so much money. You're selling a piece of bread with a little bit of avocado and those things sell for five bucks. Beautiful. Big margins, easy. Honestly, if I could do my whole menu like that, that would be amazing. But the reality, and, and maybe you could, and, and I'm trying to think about how can I make that happen because it's simple and big margins. But for like bigger, more elaborate items, like I said, 30 to 35%, that's like the old margin that you want to be making. Um, and then when you're buying stuff from vendors, usually what I've seen, um, I keep seeing is 50% is usually like your discount rate. Uh, so if you're selling, say, I don't know, an item, say a croissant that is cost you it costs you $2.50, you probably sell it for five. And um, people say like, why, that's a lot. And, and I have discussions with new wholesalers are trying to get into my business. They're trying to give me like a 20% discount. It's like, you don't realize that it's not, yes, if I sell them all, sure, I make the 20% extra, but I have to pay, check, pay for my employees, for my POS. Then my, the POS, when I say POS is the rate, or even some POS is the charger fees, uh, the point of sale or the processing fees for the credit cards that is usually around say 3% could be higher, could be lower, but somewhere around there. Uh, and on top of it, food goes to waste because the reality is sometimes things don't all sell. You buy croissants and they go stale and you don't want to sell stale croissant. So you need to account for like, I'm going to lose some of the croissants. I need to make enough money to cover those. Uh, and the reality, like you're paying the rent. Like the, the person doing the wholesale is like, oh, why do you want to discount 50%? Like, well, I have to pay, I have all the overhead. Yes, you have some overhead, but I have taken all the risk. Uh, so I would say always, Look at about fifty percent profit margins for things that you're buying ready to go, and uh, like I said, thirty percent for uh, the ones that you're making because you have to account for your labor. Like you have to account for like another twenty, thirty percent of your labor, uh, so you can make some money. Um, and I always think about them like I hate to say loss leaders, but sometimes like those food items might bring more people to your shop. Uh, so even if you'll be like, oh, I don't want to do this, but like guess what? If you have very yummy food, people might come even for the wrong reason. But now they're like, now is your opportunity to delight them. So it's almost like a marketing expense. You're having great food to come because like they have a great whatever, great croissant. And they're like, oh my God, I love the coffee. Now you have another regular. So 
it's, it's an interesting model and it's very I don't know about research, like I don't want to sell food, I'm a coffee shop, but like it's a business. I mean, it just it's just the reality. You, I I like I said earlier, I don't like uh syrups. But if I don't sell syrups, I don't have a business. If I don't have sweet drinks, I don't have a business. And yes, I can try to be very purist and some people are successful at it and I'm super proud of them. And I think that's a way to differentiate yourself. But like um I'm in a student campus and I can have people like, sorry, you cannot have sweets here. Maybe I could but it's going to be a lot harder for me to build a business. And it's their choices. And at the end of the day... So wait, wait, you cannot have sweets, like cookies and stuff? No, no, no. I'm saying that it's a choice. It's a choice for people. Like some people people say like, I don't want to put sugar or sell sweets or whatever. And I think it's a choice. I think it was with your business value. Uh, Being Colombian, like Valerian said earlier, we're all about, honestly, we're very inclusive. And this is a very overrated term. But in Colombia, I'm not gonna lie. We everybody becomes like a cousin or family members. I I have so many cousins. My wife went to a Christmas party and like I was like he's my cousin, and then eventually she's like, "Is not your cousin?" And like, no, he just spent Christmas all. He's always spending Christmas with us, and he became like adopted family member. We're very welcoming, and I always think a cafe is like is I'm welcoming somebody to my house. So if I tell somebody, and this is why I was still baristas. If somebody comes in and say, "I want six packets of, of sugar in my coffee," I have baristas they go and roll their eyes, and I'm like, "Dude, would you roll your eyes?" have your aunt or your best friend that comes into your house and asks you for six packets of sugar. If you do, I'm sorry, but you're not a nice person. Uh, and that's how I feel about my coffee shop. I want to have people welcome. And honestly, there's no right or wrong way of drinking coffee. The right way is the way you like it. And now I am nobody to tell you, oh, you're putting sugar in your coffee. You're a terrible human being. It's, you're drinking it bad. It's like, if you like it like that, it's like, that's my mindset. That's my value. Some other people might not align with that and they want to say like, no, I want to sell coffee with sugar. Like, good for you. If that's what you value, that's your values. But I'm a little bit different. There's so many people who when I come, you know, I come to visit them and they was like, oh, Valerie, I'm not going to offer you coffee, offer you coffee because X, Y, Z. I'm like, dude, that's cool. You know, it's like, I, you know, I drink all kind of coffee and just please offer me coffee. It's like, you know, when I'm on flying somewhere, I drink you know, instant coffee sometimes or Starbucks, you know, Starbucks. Yeah. yeah sometimes I, cause you need, you need some beverage, but yeah. Uh, I just, I just, I don't know. It's too dark for me many times. So I actually go to Dunkin' Donuts, which is a tad lighter. So, you know, uh, but I, I, I don't care. You know, it's like, I just take it for what it is. I always say this story. I was in Paris last year on this time. And I went to this amazing bakery. I really loved it. And because I could practice my horrible French and they la- the owner laughed at me and she kind of helped me a little bit, you know, that was kind of cool. But they coffee, man, it's an espresso shot, which took, so they do coffee ole, which is, you know, with, with uh, milk. So the espresso shot took like one minute. <laughs> The water was basically like almost clear, which was flying, coming out. And then steaming the milk, it's like she steamed the hell out of that milk. And yet, with that right pastry in a beautiful park in Paris, I was like, screw it, this is awesome. This is the best coffee I ever had. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very personal. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you there. And I know that baristas sometimes like to kind of like uh, show off what they learned, show off their skills, which is, I understand. But on the hand, I think a good barista has to also realize this is a hospitality industry and we want to be hospitable. We are welcoming these people and we don't judge. 
we make them happy and the coffee should make people happy. So that's yeah, that's the whole, you know, to be honest, that's the main reason. I mean, the, I love this. I earlier said I love the coffee shop and it's because of that. Like there's nothing more fun like seeing your regulars. Honestly, like they become like friends. Like honestly, I, I met friends. I know their names. We talk about family, how everybody's doing. As a, I mean, it's I, funny because people come to coffee shops sometimes to like lighten their days and that's really what we're there for. But they make my day better too. When I see them, I talk to them like, oh, these people are amazing. And I think that's, again, what I like about the coffee shop is that, is that community that is built around it. Uh, so I always very, when I have a resource, I'm always very eager to like tell them like, hey, it's about community. Like like you said earlier, like let's say, because the reality is you can have the specialty coffees, uh, 91 point whatever geisha that tastes like jasmine tea, blah, blah, blah. You might give it to a person and they might not like it and that's fine. And you cannot say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. It's a 91 points. Like, they don't care if an They could be, like, the perfect coffee, the best coffee in the whole world. They don't care. They just, they like it or they don't like it. And we're nobody to tell them, like, you're wrong. It's the best coffee in the world. We want a competition. Like, who cares? Uh, you cannot, I, yeah. I don't know some food items. I mean, I cannot force people. So I always tell Barista, like, do not judge employee, uh, customers call them in, welcome them in. Honestly, that's the fun part of the coffee business. It's like an experience. Like you said, your milk was over steam, the espresso took like a minute, but the experience was so good that you're like, screw it. And I'm with you about drinking bad coffees, to be honest. If you don't drink bad coffees, you don't you don't know what's a bad coffee and what's a good coffee. So you have to taste it all. And I even sometimes I I do a shot that came so restructured and distracted. And I my, my barista see it tasting it, like, why are you tasting it? Like, because I want to taste how it's gonna taste. Maybe it's a great accident and it's gonna taste amazing. Uh and if it doesn't taste amazing, I'm going to appreciate the next shot that comes well. I'm going to be like, ah, this is what amazing tastes like. So you have to drink good and bad to really appreciate the good and bad. Otherwise, you're going to be like, always drinking good coffee. You don't know what you're drinking. You start taking it for granted. So it's always, I'm not going to say go drink bad coffee every day. But like, if it's once in a while, it's <laughs> Just to see the world, yeah, exactly. Like you go to go to rich countries, go to poor countries, and compare. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. So you know, I would have one million questions, uh, of course, but we slowly uh, have to wrap up. I'll tell you one more thing. Uh, luckily, I have a lot of chef friends, uh, and uh, we always talk about margins on food. And they are, you know, as you said, fifty to hundred percent. Which for me, it was always puzzling because I was like, it's so little. I mean, imagine running a restaurant with like, you know, two main chefs and tons of sous chefs and creating, creating these amazing creations. It's like 100% or 50%. That's, you know, what? <laughs> and uh, then, then we always, I always tell them, well, I think I found the most profitable food item on the world. You know what it is? What is it? It's pizza. Oh, yeah. So totally. I'm, totally. I'm a pizza fan and, you know, well, I didn't like to eat pizza. I like to make pizza. Obviously, I like to eat it now, but before I was not like, oh, I was eating pizza. I just like to make it. So the funny thing is that I, you know, when I went to pizzerias or stuff, uh, it's like 15 to 20 bucks here in California, a a, a pizza, right? A a 12-inch, you know, pizza. And when I started to make my own pizzas, I realized that that, uh, pizza which costs 15, 20 bucks cost me to make and I'm, make, I'm buying flour in a small quantities and, and I'm buying organic so all that cost me like $1 to $1.20 to make a nice margarita which people go like wow the best thing ever and you pay 15, 20 bucks for it I'm going like 
wow, maybe maybe coffee sucks. Maybe I should open a pizzeria. <laughs> you will laugh. So funny, fun fact, um, before COVID, a, a, a pizza place went on sale. And a friend of mine told me, why don't you look into it? You're running a coffee shop. Maybe you can, whatever. I'm like, okay, let's look into it. I actually do love pizza. I love Hawaiian pizza for some reason. So I'm like, let me look into the pizza place. Started talking to the business owners. It's a franchise. You're right. They sell a pizza for, oh, back then it was over 10 bucks. It cost them less than a buck to make a pizza. And I was like, what? And you know how many people order pizza? It's crazy. I'm like, the margins in pizza are crazy and then you see this promotion i'm not gonna lie like you get a ad from like domino's oh get a large pizza for like eight bucks and you're like oh still like it's silly it's not a steal like don't get me wrong they have to make money as well but like their margins are nuts i was thinking the same thing i was like hmm should i open a coffee shop here with a pizza place and i can do <laughs> it's a crazy margin item your shop is you have to close down because people don't drink coffee you know in the evening so my idea was like opening a natural wine or actually not natural honest wine store with pizzeria and kind of somehow incorporate the concept so it can actually run as much as you can uh yeah i'm not opening a cafe by the way because i i love my freedom <laughs> i don't want to uh go i'm too old for that but that that sounds to me interesting and you are right. People go crazy about pizza. Like anytime I was making pizza parties in my house, let's say I made a goulash party. I made a Hungarian food party. Uh, yeah, some people came. You know, I made a pizza party. More people came than invited. And I was like, what? And I have this amazing little oven which makes a temperature of 950 Fahrenheit. It's called Rock Box. And there's other ovens like Uni. And it's just a great toy makes professional Neapolitan style pizza, if you know what you do, in one and a half minutes, two minutes. So it's not even American pizza, which takes, I don't know, five, six minutes. Every two minutes, you're churning out, wow. you know, 15 bucks. <laughs> yeah, it, it's mental. Like, I went to, uh, before COVID, just before COVID, there was a wine festival, which my uh, friend of mine organized. And he was, hey, Valerian, uh, come make pizza. I was like, I don't have any permits. No, it's a closed, you know, it's a closed party. Don't worry. Uh, just, you know, for my friends. I said, how many pizzas shall I make? Oh, let's make 50 pizzas. So we were selling 50 pizzas. And I think we, my son and I were selling it like for 10 bucks, which kind of recoup the cost. And then I was like, no, it's a $1. So you're actually making a lot of money. Plus the tips, the people are tipping like crazy because my son at that time was like kind of 40 and he was, you know, with, there with me. I was like, we made that in three hours, we made $800. Wow. I was like, whoa, on a, on a friends and family wine festival. It wasn't even open for public. You go like, this is mental. So anyway, so I would always say to people here in a course that, are you sure you want to go to the Roasting Lab Pro business? Because maybe you should open a pizzeria. <laughs> oh, that's a funny thing. Like I learned the class, took me a little bit while to realize, and now that I'm working in it, it's like to make money in coffee roasting, the amount of volume is just like just people take a class before you invest. Honestly, take Valerian's class before making any investment into a roaster. Big mistake I, I, I did, to be honest. I'm glad I did it. it. The accident was great, but take a class or do your research is really not that easy. Everybody says like, oh, making coffee roasting business is great. Don't get me wrong, it's very cool. I love it. But 
making money in it, you have to sell crazy amounts of volume. Same thing with a coffee shop. Yes, if you have a one-person coffee cart, maybe not that hard. But if you start having multiple employees, you have high traffic, even though I'm in a great location, still challenging. It's very challenging to make money in coffee because, like I said, you got the peak hours and people go. That's my impression. I walk into the coffee shop before I bought it. Like, oh, look at this volume in the, in the morning. It's amazing. I'm going to make so much money. But I didn't realize there's peaks and valleys. So if you schedule for like your your, your bottoms, your service is going to be terrible. and Your staff is going to quit because they're like, I cannot deal with this because I need sometimes I had that experience like that volume is crazy and people get overwhelmed by experience, by everything. So it's not that easy. You have to have lots of volume. You have to be very careful your expenses if you want to make money. So it's very sexy, not that easy, lots of volume. That's that's the summary for a coffee shop or coffee roasting business as well. It's a, it's a very fun yeah, thing to I, do. I, it's volume based. You know, I think that, and that's what I try to do on that course. And thank you that appreciating that is that, you know, I should, I don't want you to waste your time. If you come for a week, now it's a week long, you spend us a week with us on a, on next Monday. I want you to go home and start to hustle because you say, oh, I love this. <clears throat> this is the best thing that can happen to me. I love the coffee. I love the industry. I love to work with coffee. And this is what I want to do. Realizing that you're not going to make the same amount of money like a, a coder or a Google employee or an investor. Uh, maybe if you go into Starbucks, but most of us don't. Or you on Monday, you go like, this is not for me. I can make much more money doing something else. And that's what I want to do. But, you know, every food product, even pizza, even, you know, wine, you have to have passions for it. If you don't have passion, you're going to be brutally killed by the, by the competitors, like the chains, because they figure out how to do the business in big volumes. But you have to figure out how to stand out, how to be different, how to offer something awesome. And the fact that you welcome your people, like your family, you know their like, life events, like, hey, baby, new baby family, congrats, you know, or how are you doing? How is your school? How is your job? Whatever. That adds the specialty on your side, which I don't think Starbucks can deliver or anybody else, you know, because... Just and it's because I'm a small yeah. business. And that's the reality. Like, like you said, if I ever grew to be like a Starbucks, which to be honest, that would be amazing if I can grow up to be a very big coffee shop chain or whatever. Now, now I want to say Starbucks, like a blue bottle or whatever. Uh, you cannot scale yourself. I mean, you might try to scale your values and do a good job at that. But uh, like you said, my, my passion eventually is to hopefully jump into coffee full time. But like you said, I'm aware that making the money that you're making tech is going to be extremely hard. But the passion is there. I'm always thinking, like, if I can make a good living and uh, working in what I like, I'm okay exactly. with it. Some people might be like, I don't. I'd rather make a lot of money. And that's fine, too. Like, if you want to make a lot of money, don't get me wrong. Maybe coffee is not the right business to do unless you have, like, there's, uh, uh, maybe it is. Maybe you have a lot of investors, are a great executor, and can make the next blue bottle It happen very quickly. Great, but I'm just going to say it's not going to happen overnight. So if you want to make the same money that you can make in other jobs, it's going to take time, effort. And it's like you said, you have the passion to go through the whole grind and make it happen. Yeah, and if you want to be an ex-blue bottle, please don't buy a five-kilo roaster. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much. Uh, it was really awesome. And uh, we have to do this again in a year or two when we learn how your changes changed everything on your cafe. Hopefully you're yeah. not going to do pizza and you're going to still do cafe. No coffee shop for sure. I'm excited to see what the changes are. There's a little bit radical, but I'm excited to change the business model and experiment. And again, 
the other thing is helping the farmers and helping the baristas as well. I cannot just focus on the farmers. So I'm excited to share how that goes. I hope it succeeds. That's like everybody, but like there's the two paths. We'll see how it goes. I'm looking forward to sharing that and see how that goes. Uh, listeners and now viewers, thank you so much for joining us and have a good one. Bye. <laughs>